you've got a copy of the scriptures, please turn with me this morning to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 11 through 22. This is God's word for us, his people, this morning. The Apostle Paul writes this. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father." So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God. By the Spirit. This is God's word for us this morning. Let's pray and ask for his help to understand it. Father, we thank you that you haven't left us alone to figure out what we should believe or how we should live as your people, but you've given us your word. And Lord, we pray now that you would send the Holy Spirit to us, that you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts and our minds. Lord, teach us what it means that we are the household of God. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. One of my favorite sports movies is the movie Miracle, which is about the 1980 U.S. Olympic hockey team that defeated the Soviet Union and arguably communism uh, in the Olympics, uh, the gold medal match, or the silver medal match. But... Uh, the U.S., this, this movie is actually, it's great. It's really enjoyable. And there's a scene where the coach, Herb Brooks, is making his team. And he's selecting kind of this ragtag group of misfits. And as they get together, they're sort of uh, becoming a team. And he asks them to introduce themselves. And so they stand up and they say, hey, I'm so-and-so and I play for uh, Boston. Uh, or I play for uh, Minnesota. Uh, And that's actually kind of a running joke that the hockey team is just a bunch of guys from Boston and Minnesota. 
But what happens is they, there's this historic rivalry between Boston and Minnesota in collegiate hockey, and the team has trouble gelling because of that. They have this old hostility that is keeping them from becoming a single team together. And so after uh, one of their early games uh, that they lose because they're not passing to guys who used to play on the other team, uh, and they're divided, and, and that is ruining their effectiveness as a team. And so they lose this game, and the coach says, everyone line up on the goal line. And he blows the whistle, and he has them skate uh, back and forth for, for hours after uh, this game that they've just played. They're exhausted. They're falling down on the ice, and he starts yelling at them. He says, you have to learn that the name on the front of your jersey is more important than the name on the back. And he keeps blowing the whistle. Eventually, the stadium people come, and they say, hey, we need to shut down. And the guys all kind of breathe a sigh of relief. And the coach says, just leave the key. Uh, I'll get it when we're done. Uh, and so they keep skating. They keep blowing the whistle. They keep just being exhausted. And finally, they get to the end line. And one guy is just beside himself. And he says, coach. And he says, yes. He says, my name is Michael Ruzioni. He says, and who do you play for? He says, I play for the United States of America. He says, gentlemen, we're done. And his point was that they needed to overcome these hostilities and realize they were on the same team to be what they were called to be. A few weeks ago, Michael Langer was preaching here, and he said, he asked you all if you could think about what the most difficult task for a pastor might be. And he kind of ran through some scenarios, and he said, the hardest thing that a pastor has to do is try to hold the church together. Try to hold all of these different people with different experiences and different temperaments and different backgrounds, all of these different things, trying to hold them together in one single group. Well, friends, that is true. And it's not just true now. It's true throughout the entire church's history. And in fact, in Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul is illustrating that same truth for us. He is showing us the difficulty of division in the church and how that hostility in the church ultimately can damage the church and threaten the church and what the church is meant to be. In the earliest days of the church, the main division was between Jews and Gentiles. Jews were God's people from the Old Testament who had been walking in faithfulness. They'd had the scriptures and, and were set apart even for thousands of years prior to the time of Christ. And the Gentiles were everybody else. They had a variety of experiences, a variety of backgrounds. And what happens in the early church is suddenly, as people trust in Christ, you have a group made up of Jews and Gentiles. And it's difficult. There are differences. There is hostility that results. And what Paul shows us here in Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, is he reminds us that God is building his beloved community. He is building his church, and that church is always threatened by divisions. And so what the passage today does is it tells us a few core truths about the church. And those core truths help empower unity 
in Christ's body, unity in the church. So we're going to look at three of those truths this morning. Here's the first one. In the church, no one has earned a spot. No one has earned a spot. Uh, Paul notes, he begins even in verses 11 and 12, reminding his audience, reminding this church that they are all sinners, especially those who are Gentiles. He says, you got to remember, at that time when you were far off, you were separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel in whom the promises were found at that time. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. You had no hope and you were without God in the world. This reminds us the church is full of sinners. It's full of sinners. We are the community of the saved, the people who needed God's grace. And we've, reminded, we've been reminded even earlier in Ephesians that salvation itself is not something we do. Salvation is something God does. So we're not only acknowledging that we are sinners, we are acknowledging that we had no hope apart from God doing something for us. Even Jews, that was true of them as well. Throughout the Old Testament, God reminds them over and over again in places like Deuteronomy chapter 7. That it's not because they were great in number that he acted and saved them. He says, you were the fewest of all peoples. I saved you because I wanted to. No one in the church is here because they've earned their spot. No one's here because they're not a sinner. No one's here because they have saved themselves. This is what I call the the Groucho Marx principle of church membership, Uh, is that it can be hard, but we rarely want to be members of a club that would have us as members, uh, as Groucho so helpfully put it. But that's the church. The church, the hard truth of being part of the church is that no one is here because they are moral. No one is here because they are religious. The only thing that gets you in is knowing you're a sinner and knowing you are utterly dependent upon God's grace. Remember the first membership vow that we just read like not 10 minutes ago? Do you acknowledge yourselves to be sinners in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure and without hope, save in his sovereign mercy? That's what gets you in the door of church membership. So that's our first truth. No one here has earned their spot. Here's the second truth. The identity we have in the church is more true than our differences. The identity we have in the church is more true than our differences. Paul, in the middle section of this passage, states over and over and over again that Jesus has reconciled us both to God and to one another. And what he's saying there is that the cross has both a horizontal dimension, but also, I'm sorry, a vertical dimension, but also 
a horizontal dimension. It doesn't just reconcile us as individuals to God, although it does that, but it also overcomes the distinctions that cause hostility among us. We are united in our need, which is our sin, and in our hope, which is Christ. That was true for Jews and Gentiles in the first century, and that's true for us today. Jesus has made us one. That's what Paul says in verse 14. He himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. You see, the cross is the thing that heals The cross is the thing that reconciles us to God and to one another. And it does that by removing what Paul says in verse 14 is the dividing wall of hostility. And then he continues in verse 15 to explain a little bit more about what that dividing wall might be. And he says that dividing wall uh, comes down uh, as Christ abolishes the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Now, if you've been around the church for a while or you're more familiar with your Bibles, you might think to yourself, how does that fit with something Jesus says in the Gospels? Because in Matthew 5, Jesus tells his disciples and he tells the Pharisees, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. So what is it that Paul is talking about here when he says that Jesus came to abolish the law of commandments expressed in ordinances? What was happening in the first century is that Jews in the church had all of these outward signs of being Jews. They had uh, food laws that they kept, which meant that they often couldn't eat with Gentiles. They had clothing laws about what they would wear that meant that they looked distinct from other people. They had circumcision, which marked them out as God's people. And all of those ordinances of the Old Covenant were meant to be pictures of God's grace. They were meant to be pictures that this people had been redeemed and set apart and was meant to be be illustrative of what God wanted humanity to be. But instead what was happening is those outward signs of law-keeping had become boundary markers. Those outward signs of being God's people had become a way of distinguishing who was in and who was out, who was a Jew and who was a Gentile. And what Paul is saying here in verses 14 and 15 is that Jesus came to tear down boundary markers. He came in the cross to tear down those things that divide us from one another and to reconcile all kinds of people or we could say all kinds of sinners, both to God and to one another. And that those people, that variety of people, is gathered together into one body, the church. So one of the questions we have to ask ourselves as we think about Jesus who has come to remove boundary markers from one another, how wide open are the doors of our church. How wide open are the doors of this church? What are the boundary markers that remain? 
What are the unreconciled boundary markers that, that divide us from other people or what we might think of as other kinds of people? Here's an illustration from my own uh, earlier uh, pastoring, uh, not at this church. This was not even two churches ago. This was, this was way back. Um, the church that I was pastoring in at that time had had issues where um, cars were getting broken into during the service. And so the church hired an off-duty police officer to do security at the church. And uh, one Sunday, uh, the off-duty police officer, uh, who was still uniformed, was standing in the lobby, um, just kind of waiting, I guess, to do his job. And one of our elders was standing with him. And someone who was visiting walked up to the elder, not being used to seeing a police officer at the church, and sort of wondered if something was wrong. And she says, hey, is, is everything okay? And the elder responds in a joking way, but still responds, oh, it's fine. He's just here to keep the bums and the drunks out. That's not why he was there. But friends, that person who was visiting the church, I mean, they never came back. Uh, Who knows what their story actually was. But what they heard was there's a boundary wall here at this church, that people who are on the fringes or people who are imperfect or people who are outwardly sinful are not welcome here. What are the boundary markers that remain for us? Who are the people that we might be struggling to welcome if they showed up here on our doorstep? Who are they? What are they like? Is it people of a different class? Is it people who have different political preferences than we have? Is it people who might be um, in different family conditions? Maybe they have complicated families. Maybe, they have, uh, maybe they're single. Maybe they're um, divorced. Is it, is it people who just don't look like many of us look? Is it people who struggle with particular sins? or people of different language groups, or ethnicity. Friends, it's important that we think about these boundary markers. What are the things that divide us from one another? Jesus has come to overcome those things in the church. The church is meant to be a place where Jesus is the primary thing we have in common. Like, that's just important for us to note and to understand. The church is not meant to be a place where we all look the same. The church is meant to be a place where it's sort of like, how did these people get together? Jesus. Jesus is how this random group of people got together and love one another and care for one another. That is what the church is meant to be. We are supposed to have in Christ an identity that is more true than our differences. So that's the second thing that we see here in uh, Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. Here's the third truth that will help us think about church unity. Uh, And that is that the church is meant to be a picture of life as it was meant to be. That's what the church is meant to do. We are meant to be a picture of life as it was intended to be. And you see that in verses 19 to 22. Look at what Paul says about what the church is. He says, So then, 
You are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, which means the foundation of the Old and New Testament. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Friends, the old hostility is gone and we are being built together into a family, into a household, into a temple, a dwelling place for God. Which means the church is meant to be a place that is a picture of God's presence in the world. The church is meant to be the place where God's rule and God's reign is most evident in the way that we live together. The church is meant to be a place of reconciliation, of delighting in our differences because they make things more interesting, not because they make things more hostile. The church is meant to be a place of humility and hospitality and welcome. And that's why it's interesting that twice in there, in 21 and 22, uh, Paul says these are things that we are doing together. We're doing this together. There's no option in the Christian life for individualism. There's no option in the Christian life for nationalism. There is no option in the Christian life for parochialism. Friends, we are doing this together with Christians from around the world and throughout time. When Paul says we do this together, he is reminding us that we need the local church. We need the local church. We need one another. We are not meant to go our own way in the Christian life. It's not supposed to be me and my Bible versus the world. We need one another. The church matters. We talked a few weeks ago about how the church is meant to be a community of hope. And one of the things we said is that the task of hope is too large and the, the brokenness of the world is too severe for any one person to have hope by themselves. We have hope together in the church. We need one another. And we'll talk about this in more detail in the coming weeks. But friends, we also need the historic church. We need to be reminded that we're not the first people on the scene. We are stepping into the story halfway through and there's a lot of story that has come before us. Friends, did y'all know that Martin Luther wrote a treatise on what it means to be the church during a plague? Like, that could have been pertinent, maybe, over the last few years. Like, Augustine of Hippo, this bishop in the 4th and 5th century in North Africa, writes about what does it mean to be a Christian when the world's lone superpower is dwindling and falling. Like, guys, we've been here before. We are part of the historic church. And when Paul says we are being built up together, he means we are being built up not just with those immediately around us, but those who have come before and those who will come after. We can't fall prey to chronological snobbery and assuming that we know better than those who've been here before. We are part of an ancient people with a long story. Here's one other way that we're being built up together. 
And that is, friends, we need the global church. We need the church that is outside our place, that is outside our context, and even that is outside our tradition or even understanding of the scriptures. We need the global church. Here's just a few things, for instance, I think we can learn from the global church in particular. Uh, one of the more interesting books that I've read in the last 10 or 15 years is by a Korean theologian named Sung Chan Ra. And he talks in his book about how different Christians in the West and Christians in places where they are persecuted think about heaven. He says, for wealthy Christians, heaven is kind of like your life now, just sort of better. There's kind of more of what your life now is like. But he says, imagine a 16-year-old girl in the Darfur region of Sudan. What does heaven look like for her? It is completely different than her life as she knows it. Heaven is a place of abundance where she knows only scarcity. It's a place of peace where she knows only violence. It's a place where her parents are still alive. Friends, we need to hear the voices of brothers and sisters around the world to help us understand the scriptures, to help us understand the gospel more fully. Friends, we need the witness of the black church, which helps us understand what does it look like to be faithful to the gospel when you stand outside the halls of power and influence. We have much to learn there. We need the witness of the Latin American church that insists that just like Jesus' ministry was preaching and healing, so our mission in the world must be concerned for the poor, not just their souls. And mission itself must be integrated with preaching the gospel and works of mercy and justice. We need the witness of our Chinese brothers and sisters who meet every week faithfully under threat of expulsion and arrest in a context of persecution. We need the witness of our African brothers and sisters, especially on things like joy. This was illustrated for me one time as a, a missionary from Africa was returning and talking to our church about the different ways that we do the offering. In American churches, the offering is often one of the more somber times of the service. We sit there quietly, the music plays, we pass the plates, and we give, um, which is good. It is an act of worship. I'm not mocking that. In many African churches, they dance down the center aisle and put their offerings at the front. It's not a time of, sob of sobriety. It's not a time of somberness. It is a time of celebration of God's blessings and his gifts and of returning those gifts back to him. Uh, many of you all know that I'm in a, a PhD program uh, at Trinity International University, and one of the things that's been so amazing to me about being in that program is that there are Christians from all over the world who are part of this program. And so every time I go to campus, I am in the most diverse atmosphere I've ever been in my entire life, and what we have in common is Jesus. Uh, I have colleagues in that program from Africa, from every country in Asia, from South America, and we come together, we have Jesus in common. It's beautiful and it's profound. And I've learned so much from just listening to them talk about the gospel in their 
context. We could learn from the Muslim background believers in my program about what faithfulness and mission looks like. Uh, last time I was in, uh, I told this story to, to a friend earlier, last time I was there in Chicago, uh, I was invited to dinner by a, a colleague in the program named Heba, and she and her husband invited me over for dinner one night while I was there. And they were like, tell us about your story. And I was like, well, I've kind of lived like all over the place a little bit. I lived in uh, North Carolina, in uh, Missouri, Texas, Virginia, you know, kind of all over, been all over. I was like, what about you? She goes, well, uh, you know, I grew up in Egypt. I became a pharmacist. Um, my husband and I felt called to share the gospel throughout the Muslim world. So uh, since I was a pharmacist, I convinced Pfizer to open a branch in Yemen that they put me in charge of. So we moved to Yemen uh, and ministered there. Uh, me working full-time as a pharmacist and trying to plant a church alongside that. Uh, and then civil war broke out in Yemen, uh, so we had to flee to Dubai. Uh, and when we were in Dubai, we realized that we needed more training before we go back. So now we're in Chicago working on degrees of theological training so that we can go back and do missions. And I was like, I really haven't lived everywhere. <laughs> um, but the faithfulness of, of using this gift and this skill set that God gave you to go and find ways to spread the gospel. We need to learn that kind of faithfulness and mission from our brothers and sisters around the world. Another colleague in the program named Ebi uh, is going to plant a church in the northern part of India. And Ebi uh, was presenting and telling us about this church plant, and he has gathered 5,000 prayer partners for this work of church planting. We so often, when we go to plant a church, are thinking about dollars and making sure we have the funding to get this done. And he says, the money will take care of itself. We are looking for people who will pray with us. We could learn that kind of faithfulness in prayer from our Christian brothers and sisters around the world. Friends, the church is meant to be a place where no one has earned a spot where the identity we have in Christ is more true than our differences, and where we are meant to be a picture of life as it was intended to be a reconciled humanity, delighting in one another and together bearing witness to the truth of the gospel, not only in what we say, but in the very quality of our life together. And what Paul tells us is that the way all of this happens is not that we get super serious about being better, but it's the fact that he says in verse 14, Jesus is our peace. And in verse 17, he says Jesus came to preach peace. What Paul is saying there is that Jesus is both the message and the messenger of the gospel. And that's why four different times in this passage, Paul says all of this happens in Christ. All of this happens in Christ. This is what Jesus is doing in the church. All of us who are united to Christ are being redeemed from sin, are being reconciled to God, are being reconciled to one another, are being built up into one body, the church. All who are in Christ are doing that. And Jesus is the one now at work among us by his Holy Spirit, tearing down the boundary markers that divide us from one another. He is forming a new humanity with an identity more true than any of the differences that we have. 
And he is making us, even this morning, a picture of his goodness and his grace. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you are at work in us, even this morning. Lord, we thank you that though we have differences, though we are sinners, in the cross of Jesus you have reconciled us both to you and to one another. Father, be at work at Heritage. Father, draw us together more and more into the body of Christ. Help us to love one another, to follow one another, to care for one another, to bear one another's burdens. Lord, help us to work out this gospel of Jesus with fear and trembling. And let us do that together, that we might be a picture of your goodness and grace. Father, even now as we come to the table, I pray that you would take this ordinary bread and this ordinary cup and use them for an extraordinary purpose, to anchor us more and more in Christ's work on our behalf and to draw us more and more into union and communion with Christ and one another. And we pray all of these things in his name. Amen.